Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm the host, Miranda Donnelly. In today's episode, I chat with Amanda Wiles, whose name you might recognize from episode 10. If you want to listen to our chat about applying to pediatric outpatient jobs, check out the show notes or find the episode in your podcast player. Since episode 10, Amanda went back to school for her OTD and has just recently started her own private therapy practice. Today, we're talking about the process of starting a practice from the idea stage all the way to getting the first clients. The show notes for this episode are full of great resources, so be sure to check those out. I had a great time talking with Amanda, and I know you'll find a lot of value in what she has to say. So let's get to the interview and uncork this topic together. Welcome, Amanda, back to OT Uncorked. I'm very happy to have you back. And you were a guest on episode 10 last August in 2019. Yes, I feel like so long ago, though. I was looking back the other day and I realized it was only a year ago, but I actually thought it had been two years. So. It really felt like that. Well, a lot has happened in this past year and a couple months, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about today because you've got some exciting things going on. That last episode was a reflection on your job application process. You were about a year into practice, and it was part of that passion meets paycheck, talking about, okay, we graduated. What now? How do we get that first job? And now, here we are. So much has changed. (laughs) Yes, a lot. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really excited to hear what you've been up to. Obviously, I I kind of know what you've been up to, but I'm excited for you to share it with other people. So before we get into that, what are you drinking today as we talk? Oh, yes. So I, in all honesty, have a very cheap bottle of wine. Um, it's only the second, well, yeah, it's only the second bottle I've had at this apartment since um, we've moved here. So I I went pretty cheap here. Um, Perfect. It's called Available Pino Grigio, and it's from Puglia, Italy, it says. Um, There's really no description about, like, the flavor or anything like that, but it does have some very pretty teal artwork. Oh, let me see it. It kind of drew me to the bottle. Oh, pretty. Oh, that's how I choose my wines, too, now. The, the name and the and the label because there's so many good choices so yeah I never know what to pick somehow. I never yeah. know what to pick yeah <laughs> well I am actually drinking one called dime which has the most simple label it just says dime on it it's black label and it's from Santa Barbara 2016 we got it in our wink package which I actually opened on Instagram live through OT Uncorked um, because you know I love wine love sharing that with people so I'll talk more about that at the end of the show what I thought about it all right. I'm excited yeah. to hear your review. Yeah. So uh, for I want to start with updates since you were last on the show. Like we said, a lot has changed in the past year. Neither of us thought it was that short a time period. That last episode, if anyone's interested, like I said, it was episode 10. And actually, I double checked today and it is still the most downloaded episode of OT Uncorked. So I go through the analytics every so often to try to see you know, what people are listening to. And without fail, I mean, in this past year, year plus since since that episode came out every week new people are listening to it so I think the content is still very valuable so it's kind of yeah exciting. that's exciting and you know I'm, I'm hoping that I have some other interesting things to share with everybody today and you know that I really enjoy doing this with you it's it's a great podcast and 
I personally find, you know, your episodes really helpful too. So. Thanks. Well, I, I know this one's going to be really helpful. So full disclaimer to anyone listening, Amanda and I are close friends. So I've been hearing about all of these updates as they've been happening. And I have been feeling like I've been just playing 20 questions with you. Every time we talk, I just ask you all of these questions about what's happening and what you're learning. And just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking on the phone and I said, we should really be recording this right now because I am learning so much. I know other people would be too. I see a lot of conversation online about starting businesses. Even though I'm not an entrepreneur, that sort of spirit is really exciting to me. And so I'm in a lot of these groups anyway. And so I just feel like lots of people are going to want to hear what you have to say. So that being said, we are talking about your exciting new venture. So tell us pretty much what has happened since the last episode. You're working in outpatient peds, talking about going back to school. Okay, what happened next? Yes. So I, you know, I had this idea. It had been an idea throughout probably my master's year of OT school that maybe I would go back to school to get some sort of doctorate degree. Um, at the time, I wasn't sure if it should be an OTD or a PhD, which I know is a common question people have. Um, but I had decided, you know, pretty quickly in August, around the time we recorded the last, you know, podcast that I wanted to actually, you know, take that step and go back to school for my OTD um, because my primary reason really was about wanting to be able to be in education um, and have that opportunity in the future. So I really felt like an OTD was necessary. So I decided pretty quickly, rushed to take my GRE. And then I applied to USC's OTD program. Um, after several months of figuring out, you know, if we were moving to California, if we were not moving to California, we decided that we were moving. And I went to USC to get my OTD. Um, and so that's a year-long full-time program. Um, so we moved there. I did the program. And now, a year later, I'm back on the East Coast. So I moved to coast to coast <laughs> twice. Um, and now that I'm back on the East Coast, I'm um, an adjunct professor now at a local college. And I'm also an owner of a business, which is just very crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot has changed in one year. And I'm still hoping you're going to do another cross-country move and come back to us in California. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm opening a business, so that might not be a great yeah. idea. <laughs> Odd, odds are pretty low. We might just have to follow you there at some point. Yeah, exactly. That, that probably makes the most sense. <laughs> you mentioned that you had this idea to start a business pretty much since you were in OT school. I remember you kind of talking about that a little bit. We had our class where we had to develop a business plan. I remember you kind of, I could see the gears turning of what you were going to do down the line. Why now? Yeah, so that's a great question. And you're right, I, I've kind of always had in the back of my mind like this idea that at some point I wanted a business. Um, and I would say that it kind of went on and off, right? So like every few months I would have the idea again of like, I really want to think about what business I could I could make or, you know, develop. Um, and it really felt like, you know, we were moving from coast to coast and I didn't want to start another job at a pediatric clinic and have maybe a non-compete agreement where there was no way that I could, you know, take a step out of that in the same town that I live in and create my own business. Mm -hmm. um, and really, Travis, my husband, kind of encouraged me to jump in and, and do it now. Um, you know, what better time 
then when there's this weird transition phase of, of, you know, I already knew I wanted a business, so why not do it at this, at this time? Um, and I felt like after doing my OTD, I just had a lot more skills and I felt a lot more confident in my ability to actually start the business. Um, one of the things I did in the program was develop a business plan. So I was able to kind of get into the nitty gritty and, and make this idea more concrete. And that really helped me feel like it was a real possibility. So there was just this natural sort of change and, you know, between moving, ending a program, it was like perfect new beginning. And uh, that idea you actually brought up too about the non-compete. And, you know, if you were to start a, a position in an established clinic and then start to develop your idea, there's a lot of legal implications of that. So it sounds like from just a, a professional perspective, you were ready for that. And also you had some other considerations to, to kind of starting that as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we wanted to, to move to a place that we wanted to stay at for a while, yes. right? And, and I will say that one thing that we considered a lot when we moved was thinking about where we wanted to move, knowing that we wanted to open a business, right? Where is going to be a good location to start a business? Um, so because we knew before we moved that that was a goal, we were able to kind of gear our decision a little bit based on where that business should be and, and the competition and those sorts of things. So I want to ask more about that and how you chose that location. But so far, we've just built up the suspense that you started a business and we've really built that up. But I'm sure people are wondering, what is that business? So before we get into sort of how you chose your location and how that all went, can you just give us a brief overview of your business? Kind of what's the what's the mission of it? Yeah. Um, so the business is called Pediatric Therapy Partners. It's in Delaware and hopefully soon in Maryland, just because I live so close to the state lines that we're doing both. Um, so it's a pediatric occupational therapy practice. Um, it's mobile, meaning I'm going to be going to the client's homes or preschools or private schools and providing services there. Um, one of those reasons is because low overhead when you're starting a business, it's a good thing. I've heard a lot of, of people doing that. Um, but the second is really there's three kind of values that I have for the business, and those are really well suited to treating the child in their natural context, whether that's at home or school. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, a big reason as to why that's the model that I'm using. So those three values that I was talking about, um, the first one is guided by child interest. So just something that I have seen to be so effective in therapy um, and you know, there's a couple different therapy models that use that tenant. Um, so it's just one of the things that I wanted to focus on. The second is driven by collaborative partnerships with families. And the third is informed by research. And that, that second one of being driven by these collaborative partnerships with families, that's something that I think is just so well suited to, to doing visits in the home. And maybe that's something that in the future we can keep, you know, always, or we have to change the model a little bit. But for now, I really think that being able to go to the child's home and interact with their parents and their family and involve them so much in therapy is just so important. And especially now with COVID, you know, people are staying home and they're home a lot. So families are really trying to figure out what they can do. I think that is really important. And as you know, I am not a pediatric therapist. 
at all. But when I do talk to other pediatric therapists and in the Chan division, there's a lot of other pediatric researchers. So I feel like I hear this theme a lot, but the idea that the children are in their home when they already potentially have some, um, whether it be sensory challenges or differences or something that makes it harder for them to participate in other settings that they're not familiar with, it's. I can imagine it would be sometimes kind of challenging to bring them into this new space, potentially with other kids around, not, not in COVID era, but prior to that and potentially post, and trying to work on some of these skills in an area that maybe they're not even comfortable with. And so I love that you're going into the home, you're on their turf, you're not just the expert that they're coming to you. You're going in with them and that collaborative nature, I think, is huge in any area of practice with, with any population. Yeah, I, th- I think you, you brought up something that really sticks out to me is that concept of, you know, them coming to me, I'm the expert, I know this information and I'm giving this information to them to help them, right? Um, but a really popular thing and a common thing now, people are starting to realize the importance of recognizing the parent as the expert, right? So the parent is the one that has so much expertise about their child. I'm just there to help them, you know, build their child's skills and promote these things that their child might be having trouble with. But really, you know, who's with their child 24-7, the parent? Um, And they just provide so much valuable insight um, into the therapy process. Sure. And I feel like you get to see those dynamics more naturally versus having a parent, you know, sit in a chair on the other side of the clinic or in the waiting room or even just near you. Um, I feel like that's not what's happening in the home. They're actively involved with their children's occupations, right? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And you're, you're mentioning so many good things that I've thought about in the process of developing this business. Well, um, I, I did have a cheap, I, I talked to you about this a lot, so I think I'm just mirroring back what I've heard you say. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Yeah. It's funny because I talked about working on this business plan at USC in the OTD program, and one of the things we do is we do like a business pitch presentation for our business or our programs, and we, you really, in presentations, right, especially business pitch presentations, you want there to be some sort of this emotional connection, right? And one of the stories that I talk about at the beginning is imagining yourself in this busy, chaotic waiting room, and the therapist comes out at the end of the session with your child and just crams five minutes of information at you, and then that's the end of your therapy session. You know, it's not necessarily effective in promoting this carryover at home or helping the parent really learn what you're doing with their child. It's, yeah, so this this going to the home, I'm just really excited. Sadly, maybe not sadly, but just part of the process. I haven't yet gone to families' homes and started seeing clients. I'm waiting on some licensure, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but um, really looking forward to when I can start doing that. Yeah, that, oh gosh, I'm just so excited about your mission, and, and even though, you're not in the homes yet. And of course, there's barriers that we'll talk about to that. And you're still really in the fairly early stages of the process. I feel like every time I talk to you, I'm so impressed with how much you've done in such a short period of time. Um, But this sounds like just a really occupation-based, important service that families need. Before you talked about that, you were mentioning how you chose where you and your husband were going to move based in part on where you thought your business would thrive. How did you go about deciding that, especially living across the country where you were not already in that market? So what what did you do to figure out, yes, this is where we should live because this is where there's a a need for these services? 
Yeah. So, you know, we kind of, I would say first, we really looked at where we wanted to live, like as individuals, as a family, where we want to live and in the future, you know, have a family there. Um, And there were really kind of two primary locations that stuck out, both of which are about a half hour away from our family. So that was really the first kind of factor. Um, After that, we then kind of looked at these two locations and compared them a bit. So we actually lived in one of those locations prior to moving across the country. Um, And then there was this new location um, that we were slightly familiar with, but not really. Um, So after looking up those two locations that we personally were interested in, we found that this other location, Middletown, Delaware, is just a really rapidly growing area. So their population growth percentage is just sky high above the rest of the towns around here. Um, And they currently only have one pediatric therapy clinic. And that clinic opened about a year ago. So it's, it's growing and there seems to be this need for pediatric therapy. Um, so really, you know, personal reasons and, and business reasons there. When you go about that process, is there any sense of like competition with that other therapy clinic? Do you feel like your services in some way will be different? Um, or is there just such a need that, you know, a third business could open up and you would all have plenty of clients? And do you have a sense yeah, of that yet? <laughs> right. I was going to say, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm not fully sure I know yet, but one thing that I will say is I think that there is a market out there for lots of families, right? They don't have to be this like competitor that's working against me. And, you know, we're all there to serve the families. That's the goal. If they get great services from this other clinic, I am happy that they're getting great services, right? Sure. Um, but one thing I will say is a lot of clinics aren't able really to send therapists to the home or send therapists to the child's private school or preschool. Um, and there's some financial reasons for that, right? It's you know financially a little more viable to just have them come to you. Um, but for me as a solo practitioner, especially right now, it's pretty feasible that I can offer that service to families. And so there's that unique offering piece that mm. I don't feel like, you know, I'm opening a clinic next door to this company and trying to steal all their clients, right? Um, we're kind of offering a little bit of different things. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your target client? Like, is there a specific age group you're most excited to work with or a particular, um, not to classify people by diagnosis, but is there a particular need that you really are most excited to fill? Mm -hmm. You know, I think back to my my time in my first job, pediatric outpatient and and some preschools, that kind of thing. Um, And that people ask you kind of a lot of business owners in the therapy world were asked you to think about your ideal client. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I I'm advertising and kind of marketing the business is more of a broad kind of able to serve a lot of different things, which there's pros and cons to that. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying sure. you should do that pros and cons for sure. Um, but that's what I'm choosing to do. Um, but just personally, I would say, you know, I've, I've had this just interest in sensory integration or sensory-based interventions alongside of this like floor time relationship-based model. And those two are really often times used and effective with children with autism spectrum disorder. Um, and so I've just seen 
the effects of that relationship-based model. I'm not trained in floor time or DIR at this time, but just using some of those components in therapy is so rewarding and just exciting to watch happen. Um, so I really am just particularly interested in, in that. Um, and then eventually I'd really like to get into feeding as well. So kind of merging that sensory based intervention with feeding. I had a few kids I've seen for feeding challenges, um, but just not enough yet that I feel comfortable marketing myself as the specialist that can come to your house and work with your child in feeding. You know, sure. I think it's important to recognize what I have experience with and also what I have limitations with. I feel like there's a, this ethical responsibility that we have, of course, as therapists to know our boundaries and our limits and also continue to grow ourselves. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you talked about competition earlier with this competing clinic. You know, if I, they, I know they do some like concussion-based treatment or feeding or whatever it might be, right? If I don't have experience, I am more than happy to refer a family sure. to this other place that does have the experience, right? We can work together in that way. Especially with this emerging market too. I mean, there's, it seems like there's plenty of families that are going to need services that are probably having to travel really far right now. We're just not having access that really the name of the game is, is getting people the services they need during this critical period of, of life. Right. Yeah. yeah. Critical period of life and, and just critical period of time right now with all that's happening. You know? Yes, absolutely. So we talked about you, that fact that you have kind of been brainstorming these ideas for when and how you would start your business for a bit now. And you already are officially a business owner, which is so exciting and cool. So once you kind of made that choice and you and your husband decided you're moving and you're going to open this business, what's the next step? Because I'll say this, I feel like I hear a lot of people who've had businesses for a year or many years, they talk about their business now. And then I hear people saying they want to start a business, but that middle process is a total mystery to me. I don't know what the steps that are required between that moment of, of ideation and the you know first client that you get. So what happens in between? I want to know everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I still want to know some things too. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, I over the past probably year have really embedded myself in a lot of content and resources that are out there for specifically therapists starting businesses. So I really looked to those as really a good guidance to help me figure out what those next steps were, right? Like I'm an OT, I went to OT school, but the steps of the nuances of opening a business were not at the top of my mind in school, <laughs> nor really, you know, the emphasis of our program, which is, is fine. But so I really, I know you're going to ask me about these, but <laughs> these Facebook groups that are out there, these podcasts, these books, webinars that people host. So I really looked at those. And the first thing I think I did was register the business in the state. Um, I mean, it, it took a lot of research before then, right? I'm not going to say I had this business idea. And the first thing I did was click on this website and, and register the business. But, <laughs> you know, I had to think through the name before you register your business in a state, mm -hmm. you have to figure out what you're going to call it. Um, and it seems simple, sure. <laughs> right? But it needs to be a name that no one else has and a name that means something to your company and, and to your values. So I guess taking a step back, it would be the brainstorming, right? Brainstorming this business name and um, brainstorming your values, what you want your logo to look like, right? Your name and your logo are just so representative of your values of the company. 
Um, so I think those are kind of the first steps. I skipped those because I did those during my OTD, um, not remembering that those were part of the process too. So those things. And then once I had that, I was able to actually take that step to register the business in the state. And then from there, go through a lot of other steps for licensing, other things like that. One other resource that I used a lot was the Small Business Administration. Um, and I think I might have even started with their program before I registered the business. They have a free or very cheap um, program for women entrepreneurs. It's called Passport to Business. And um, okay. it has it, a series of like 12 plus modules about just factors to consider when starting a business and once you're running your business. So lots of resources that helped those beginning brainstorming and registration phases. Naive question. So the Small Business Administration, is is that something that's sponsored by the government? Is that something local to you? What, I mean, where, how did you find that? Yeah, and what so is it? <laughs> We're starting with totally basics. Totally fine. I, t- I didn't know much about it before either. So there's a National Small Business Administration, which I believe is sponsored by the government, but I'm not confident, but there's a national, right? And then there are small business administrations for each state. So the one that I used most frequently um, was really that, that state small business administration because they put out these you know, specific resources to the laws of your state. Um, and then they also can offer some business counseling based on your business and, you know, the state you're in, because there really, there are a lot of different legal um, things in each state. So I, I really looked it up. I had heard about it before, um, I, you know, randomly in passing. The things you hear about are so funny. Like yeah. my grandmother, when she was 40, wanted to start a business potentially. So she went to the library to talk to the small business administration. And I remembered this. So I thought, why don't I look into the small business administration and see how they might be able to help me as well. Now, I think I remember you mentioning a while ago that some of these resources are typically available in person versus online, but COVID maybe changed how you access them. I don't know if it was that resource or a different one. I also might be completely mixing it up. So if this isn't true, I'm going to edit this out. I, you know that, Isn't there something where like you were going to have to be in person, but they said they'd offer it over online, which was good because you were in California? I think that might be the case. I'm having trouble remembering. I will say also, you're asking me about all this startup stuff, which is great, but I, I didn't keep a specific record of all of this. So it's a little sure. mushed in my mind sometimes. But um, <laughs> I think that maybe that there was like a webinar hosted by the Delaware Small Business Administration about like just what it means to start up a business, how you do that, the registration mm-hmm. laws, that sort of thing. Okay. And I think that they were offering that on- online rather than in like their conference center or something. Okay. So, okay. Cause you were doing all of this from California. Right. <laughs> yes. Sure. Yes. So you're trying to start a business in Delaware while you live in California, while you're also trying to coordinate a move and graduate from an OTD program. Yes. <laughs> I need to I can see I can see why the details might be a little fuzzy. Yeah, a little bit fuzzy <laughs> and I think, you know, this it's also like it's funny to think back cuz I think, you know, the process might have gone smoother or faster if I wasn't doing so many things, but you know, you hear this a lot too, but just the small steps, right? Taking small steps forward to starting this business is how it gets started, mm-hmm. right? So even yeah. if they're slower than I would have liked, um 
while I was doing the OTD, I also needed to finish that too, right? So. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I've heard a lot too. There's no good time to take a big risk or to make a big decision. There's no like perfect time. You just kind of have to decide you're going to do it. And like you said, those steps in the right direction is like kind of all you can do. And now you have a business. So it, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is working out. Yeah. <laughs> Something I've always wondered about starting a business, especially a therapy practice, is the insurance. And I think there's multiple sides to this because I know that working for a larger health system or even for, I'm assuming, a smaller clinic, the clinic insures you as a therapist, right? So if something were to happen and somebody were to come after you as a business or you as a therapist, there's some element of insurance that we need, right? Yeah. So sometimes you're right in that. Sometimes your employer will already have that in place for you. Um, At the clinic I worked at, actually, the outpatient pediatric clinic. So it was a pretty small business and they actually had us as therapists provide our insurance anyway. So it's professional liability insurance. Um, So that's your insurance for you as the occupational therapist. The business Mm -hmm. had like the general liability insurance, right? If someone got injured on the property or something like that, that was the business's responsibility. Um, But for me as a therapist, there's professional liability insurance. And sometimes employers provide that. Sometimes you yourself provide that. And so I was familiar with that already. um, But as a business owner, I have that for myself, um, for myself. And then also you can add on your business so that you're both covered under that. Okay, so you had to seek out both of those insurance plans then, even though you are your own business without other employees yet. Right, so I have professional liability insurance for me and the business. I do not have general liability insurance. So I'm not a lawyer, (laughs) um, but people (laughs) do this a little differently. Some people get it, even if they're doing a home-based practice. Um, Some people don't. And then if you have any type of in-person location, you definitely, you know, want to get the general liability insurance. Okay, great. Is it just me or is this very confusing to navigate? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it is not it just It sounds you. very complicated. <laughs> it is not just you. And it's a hard balance, right, of wanting to inform yourself of all of these things that are really important. And sometimes you really need to do, take a lot of time to do that. You don't want to do anything illegal, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But also you have to kind of make sure that you're not like overanalyzing just for the sake of analyzing, right? Like analysis paralysis. Um, so real. It, it's a hard so balance. With the legal things, I say analyze everything and figure it out, you know, all the analysis paralysis you want. But when it comes to like other small things that we'll probably talk about, like picking a phone service or a HIPAA compliant email service or an EMR, all of these things, right? You have to make an informed decision, but you can't analyze it for two months or you're never going to make a decision. (laughs) Right. If you analyze every small decision, you will never actually see a client probably. Right. 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 So there's the other part of insurance because insurance has always just been mysterious to me. Even practicing. I mean, when I was an inpatient, we didn't have to think about it too much. We only needed to, I mean, for the most part, we didn't really need to worry about it too much. The uh, There's a, a whole other office of people who took care of that and just told us if there was anything special we needed to know. And then an outpatient, I actually had to understand the insurance plans, which I think is really good, but it, it definitely confuses me. And I've seen a lot of people starting out businesses doing more like cash-based services. And I know I saw that on your website. What are some of the challenges to actually accepting insurance plans? And is that something that you foresee doing? Yeah, so... Um, first, I really 
do foresee myself doing that. Um, I want the services to be available to everybody. Um, I know cash-based services can be pretty hard, right? It's hard to to be able to pay that much for something on a mm-hmm. consistent basis, you know. And that model does work for some people in, in places and, you know, it's a, it's a viable possibility. But I do want to be able to take insurance. In terms of that process, so, you know, the big, the hardest thing I would say about the process is learning what all of the acronyms mean. Um, as a therapist, like you said, you're not familiar with kind of the back end of everything. So, you know, there's lots of different numbers and provider like portals, right? Like CAQH. It is a place where you register yourself as a provider and insurance companies can use it to kind of look your name up and they use it also in the credentialing process a little bit. So okay. all of these things that my previous employer actually already registered me for. So I just had no idea what they meant and that I was even registered because I didn't have to know. So there's, you know, national provider identifier numbers for you and for your business. Um, And so just figuring out all those acronyms, right? Because when you're going to fill out an insurance credentialing application, there's like 500 places to fill in things. And it's all of these acronyms. Once you learn them, though, it's very, like, simple to understand what they're asking for, like taxonomy codes, all this stuff. But at the start, it's a lot of education and a lot of time, a lot of not beating yourself up for taking an hour to figure out what this one thing means. (laughs) Do you feel like you figured out a lot of these healthcare-specific, you know, um, like registration protocols and all these different acronyms you're talking about that sound like just alphabet soup to me? Do you feel like there were any specific resources that kind of covered a lot of it? Or do you feel like you were just Googling and using your best judgment to figure out what resources to follow? Yeah. So honestly, there's really one resource for me that was just, it guided everything I did and I used other things as a supplement. So it's called Ready, Set, Treat. Um, There's a Facebook Academy group for it. And there's also a book. Um, So it's these two Mm -hmm. clinicians, one's a mental health provider, Susie, and one's an occupational therapist, Kristen. Um, And they have this Facebook group where they and the other people in the group answer a lot of questions about all of these steps. And they also, a really great resource, they also made this book. They have a checklist that goes through a lot of these little steps of some of the sequence you should use or, um, you know, the timeline for certain things, what you should do first. And just some links, right? So like, where do I even go to sign up for this mysterious MPI number? So (laughs) there's a link in their book that can take you directly to that website. Um, Great. And so they have a checklist for the ready, the set, and the treat phases of starting a business. So I highly recommend that book and also the Facebook group if you're able to join. Um, It was just, I would say, the foundational resource for me when I was trying to figure out all of these steps. That's really encouraging because I get the impression from a lot of people who start businesses, not just in healthcare, not just as OTs, but just other friends I know that have started businesses. Sometimes it sounds like everyone's reinventing the wheel because there's not a really central resource for learning about how to do this. And so everybody is spending, like you said, that hour trying to figure out what that one acronym means or what you actually, why it's relevant to you. And so I think it's encouraging that at least those therapists have kind of organize themselves to share that information. And then I think we're seeing a lot more of that within OT, a lot more entrepreneurship material, because we shouldn't all have to reinvent the wheel. You know, we're, we're trying to promote OT and provide services to people. So I love and I'm very encouraged that there's some central resources. 
Yeah, it's been great. And, you know, it, it, it's hard. You said, you know, spending all that time trying to figure out this stuff, right? And reinventing the wheel. You don't want to do that. It, it's a hard balance too, right? Because there's more and more content coming out and it's wonderful. And I'm so thankful for it as a new entrepreneur. Um, but also as a new entrepreneur, it's hard to balance right, the cost with what you should try to figure out on your own or pay somebody to help you with. So I don't have an answer for that. I think it's a balance, right? Um, of figuring out what you want to pay someone to help you with or what you don't. Um, but yeah, it's, it's challenging. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's actually a really good point. So you mentioned before trying to keep overhead low. And so having a brick and mortar clinic wasn't necessarily the direction you wanted to head in, at least for now. Right. Mm -hmm. But what would you say are some of those upfront costs before you start seeing clients that you need to be aware of? And what are some of those things you paid other people to do and outsourced versus trying to figure out yourself? Yeah. So, you know, in the beginning, it's the cost to like make a logo and register a business to get your like state or town business licenses or your professional OT license, all those like licensing issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, there's so many like nowadays with everything being electronic, there's just so many different systems you need to make a business work, right? Like you need mm -hmm. a HIPAA compliant email and phone service and maybe a faxing service and maybe a place to keep your documentation, right? So there's all these services and navigating which ones are okay for now because they're cheaper and which ones maybe you want to splurge on it's really hard and for me i i decided to really go with the ones that are cheaper for now just because i don't see a lot of clients so um like for example i'm using g suite which is a business version you pay for that's hipaa compliant it's pretty cheap like five to six bucks a month so i'm going to store my documentation in the hipaa compliant g suite rather than having an emr so for me, that means like developing my own documentation templates and intake paperwork, all of that within this Google suite so that I don't have to pay, you know, 50 to $150 a month for an EMR yet. Um, so, right. so decisions like that that are hard. And you asked what I kind of outsourced and got help with. Mm. And really, I would say thinking about it, there's really only one thing that sticks out, which is the logo. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the thing that's on all of your branding, all of your marketing, right. ideally for the rest of your business's life. So I did pay someone to make that for me because I have no capacity to do that. No confidence <laughs> in that. Um, sure. other things like building the website, I actually decided to do myself. So I was going to ask, cause it looks really good. I want you to rebuild my website <laughs> in all your free time. You know, I, it looks really good, really professional. And did you... Did you look up information, you know, about copywriting and by writing, I mean, actually like developing copy for your website. I mean, did you have help with that or are you just naturally good at it? Cause it looks really nice. Um, thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Um, I actually <laughs> didn't, I know there's a lot of books and resources out there about copywriting. Um, I kind of just tried to go with what seemed like helpful and intuitive. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also run a lot of things by my husband, Travis, because yeah. he's not an occupational therapist. So if something sounds too jargony or it doesn't make sense, he'll tell me and I can kind of edit it to make it more user-friendly. So that really was my main strategy with that side of things. Um, in terms of building the website and the design and all of that, there are a pretty good amount of like resources out there. So LinkedIn Learn has a whole like educational platform. I'm not sure that it's free, but at the time I was a student, so I had access. 
Um, and sure. they have like WordPress trainings, that sort of thing on LinkedIn Learn that you can access. This is really helpful for me. <laughs> this just became selfishly really helpful for me because <laughs> um, <laughs> this is so not my wheelhouse either. And I know a lot of people do outsource their websites because it just feels like such a big you know, barrier to entry of like, I, I don't know where to start. So that's really helpful that there's, and I'm sure YouTube, I mean, YouTube's like the, it's like uh you can get a whole degree on YouTube these days without actually having the credentials. I mean, there's so much information. So between that, that's really good. I think it used to be called Linda, um, the LinkedIn Learn. They rebranded it. And I remember I took some classes about how to kind of maximize the use of Excel on there when we were in OT school. And I thought it was really helpful. Okay, so that's a really good resource. Yeah, it was super helpful. Even if you have to pay a little bit, it really probably would help in expediting the process. But even if not, like you said, YouTube is is wonderful. There's so many resources. Yeah. I've learned a lot on YouTube as well. So I also want to say that, you know, I'm not saying that like building a website is like super easy, right? I There's right. been plenty of moments of like, literally feel like I want to pull my hair out because there's this like <laughs> little glitch on the website that I can't yep. figure out. Like right now, there's one on the mobile version of my website that I, for the life of me, cannot figure out how to fix. But yeah. I'm going to take a step back and figure it out eventually. Um, I, it's so, great. you know, just, just lots of, lots of things like that. And I also suggest those trainings and looking up like ways to make it easier for yourself. So I use different like plugins and things like that on mm -hmm. my WordPress mm -hmm. that make building the website much simpler than someone who would need a lot of website experience. So. Okay, that's really helpful. So, not to derail the conversation, but side note, a few weeks ago, my, uh, my husband was looking at my so fun to say husband so new still um <laughs> he was looking at my website for OT Uncorked because it's it's a work in progress and has been since I started it I'm really I should really go on to those the LinkedIn learn um and try to figure out more about how to really have a website but he was looking at it and on the front page there was this like quote bubble it was this just it kind of stood out it was like an oval and had a quote in it. And he was kind of looking at the webpage and he said, you know, I think it would look really a little bit better if it was more simple. Do you mind if we move this quote somewhere else? And I said, to be honest, with the WordPress theme I chose, there was a quote bubble and I couldn't figure out how to delete it. So I made up a quote and he just started laughing and he showed me how to delete it. But it was the point where I was like, okay, well, if I can't delete it, I'll just embrace it and put a quote on my, and it looked horrible. I love that. That is so funny. And I was like, no, we can, ple like, please, if you can delete this, please do. And there were all these things. And he was, he was so sweet. He really thought I was intentional about the choices. And I was like, oh, no, this was all stuff I couldn't figure out how to get rid of. So I just ran with it. And he's like, oh, let me get rid of it for you. <laughs> That's amazing, Miranda. Uh, do, you, do you use WordPress? Currently, I do. Okay, this is yes. a little bit of a derail, but it might be no, helpful good. for your listeners as well. I talked about plugins that are helpful. So I use yeah. Elementor plugin, which is a free, there's a free version, which I've used. Um, okay. and it makes building the website kind of like drag and drop. So it's a lot more simple than trying to, I don't even know how to use regular WordPress anymore because I just use Elementor. Wow. That is what I want. That's what I keep saying. If I could just point and say, put that there, that would be amazing. It's but it's really great. Out, that costs money. <laughs> wow. It's great. Okay. I'm going to link to all of this. This is so helpful. There is a pro version. If you want certain features, like Okay. I don't know. There's a CSS section that you have to pay for, but I truthfully don't know what that is. So I just use the free version. <laughs> that sounds familiar. And I also don't know what it is. So what I'm going to do is look up what that means and then I'll put it in the show notes and then we'll all know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Um, okay. So this is actually really good though, because again, I feel like these are the little steps that everyone knows, you know, you should probably have a business website and you should probably have, a, you know, an EMR that's HIPAA compliant, you know, if you want to keep your license and, and registration and all of that, right? Little detail. Um, but I don't feel like I hear a lot about how you do that. And it might just be that I'm not in the right group. So are there other things that you have been surprised that you needed for your business or more, more challenging to kind of put together than you expected? I can't think of any surprises right now, but in terms of challenge, I will say graphic design is just not my specialty. So every time I go to like try to draft a flyer or like I have a like a series of Facebook posts and Instagram posts lined up with like the graphics and every time I go to make the graphics for a social media post or flyer, it takes me like 20 iterations before I have something that I think is remotely visually appealing, um, mm -hmm. which in this case, if you don't have the time to invest in doing that, I think hiring someone could be appropriate. But for me, for now, I'm just doing it myself. But but that always is like, I always think that I could just log on and it would be so simple to make a flyer, but it's not. <laughs> um, Do you use Canva or what resources have you found to be helpful? Yeah, I use Canva. Um, I honestly haven't used anything else. Um, another thing in terms of Canva is, right, there's images you want for your website or for Canva, for your flyer, stuff like that. And there's a lot of free resources out there, but mm -hmm. on a very, like, kind of tangent note, I signed up for Adobe Stock Photos, like, back in OT school for a free trial. And free trial turned into not free trial, and <laughs> <laughs> I had to continue with this subscription. So don't recommend getting yourself into one of those. but it honestly was very helpful at the start of the business. So figuring out like good quality photos for the website, all of those came from my licenses from Adobe Stock. Oh, great. So, okay. you know, there's a few other resources like pexels.com or yes, pixabay.com, which have free, free images. Okay. And, you know, but there's also a lot of pro images that you can get on Adobe Stock. So, mm -hmm. you know, Sometimes it might be helpful to purchase those. So I did put a little money, I guess, into that side of things just without realizing it. Yeah, I always set alarms on my phone whenever I get a free trial because you're right, they're never free after like two weeks and it's easy to forget. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I actually want to ask you about that because I'm looking at your website right now and I'm looking at the photos and they're so, they're so great. I love the ones you chose. I remember when you were first designing your logo, and I know you showed me some of the initial options that the designer had come up with, and you were talking about how, so for anyone listening who hasn't looked at the website yet, there's a tree, and then there's a parent and a child underneath the tree holding hands, and kind of, it's it's, it's a silhouette, so there's not, not a detail, and I remember you were being really intentional about how you chose that. Can you talk a little bit more, like more about that decision process and how you wanted your logo to kind of represent your values? Yeah, so the business is called Pediatric Therapy Partners. And we talked earlier about that like partnership and collaboration with families. So mm -hmm. I wanted that to be prominent in the name, but I also wanted that to be prominent in the logo. So I knew that I wanted some sort of like parent and child interacting in this logo. And I liked mm -hmm. the concept of a tree for like this growth and development kind of idea. Um, mm -hmm. So I, that's kind of what I gave to the designer was this concept of parent-child, a tree, and green, blue, and orange. Um, <laughs> and they kind of took that and gave me three different designs that I was able to choose from. 
And this kind of was one of the ones that I liked the most. And another thing that I really, I wanted to be intentional about, and I don't know if there's a right or a wrong, but about the, the family, what that family mm-hmm. looked like under the tree. So I didn't sure. want it to be a mom and a dad and a child because I wanted there to be more inclusion than that. So I felt like if I only chose one parent, it mm-hmm. would be representative of just any family structure. And then in the image, like you said, there's silhouettes. So it is a little bit hard to tell. But if you look pretty closely, you can tell it's like a son and a dad that are jogging. However, I felt like this logo was more inclusive than other types of logos would be. Um, and truthfully, one of the things it did come down to is the logo developer was able to find the image of the like the the silhouette of the person with short hair, I'll say, because it really is hard to tell what gender. Yeah. Um, it really, yeah, there's really nothing yeah. gendered so about I wanted it, which it I like. To be, right, like less gendered. And they were able to find this silhouette of a person jogging um, and it fit really well, but other silhouettes um, just didn't fit as well. So we, we went with this um, design. I really like it. I remember when you when you were talking through this process before and um, you were showing the different options. And I just, I do love that even if it's a grandparent or a caregiver, or an aunt or uncle, whoever it is that's the caregiver for that child, they can see themselves in your logo. Mm-hmm. It really is just an adult and a shorter person. Right. You know, like it's a tall person and a short person. And I feel like that gives your clients the opportunity to see their own family structure in that. And I love that you were so intentional about that choice. And even looking just at your website, all the photos that you've chosen, you know, it's representative of different parent-child dyads and, um, you know, different like racial representation. And I really like that you were intentional about that because I think a lot of times, you know, I think about even who have I interviewed? Well, it's pretty reflective of our profession. A lot of uh, like white females, for example, I've interviewed and I'm trying to work on that. But, you know, what we present to the world, we're really saying, here's, here's, um, like, like, can my clients or my listeners or fill in the blank, whoever we're trying to serve, can they see themselves in the resources I'm putting out? And so I love that intentionality mm-hmm. of what, of what you've done here. I yeah. And I think, I think what you've said is important, right? You do want people to be able to see themselves and what you're putting out. It, it's, it's good for your business, but really it reflects your values, right? It reflects that you want your services to be inclusive for everyone. Yes. And, and I think that picking that cover photo for my website probably was took the longest of maybe any decision that I made for sure. like the entire <laughs> business so far. Yeah. I love it. Well, and it's, it's really, it captures what you've been talking about because it's a, um, a male and a, so I'm assuming it's a father son. I mean, it's a picture, so we can't whatever. But that's what it looks like, and I think that's what most people re- will read into. And they're playing with like trucks or cars or something on the floor, which like captures all your values. I love it. Like they're on the floor, you know, they're playing together, they're doing something the child's interested in. So I, you did a great job. Not to just you know sit here complimenting <laughs> you, but you did a great job. <laughs> I do appreciate it. It, I, I mean, it took so long to find that photo yeah. that I liked, and it's also hard when you're building a website because the photo has to work with like any screen size and be the appropriate height and width and all of that too. So, you know, finding that, that engagement piece and that partnership piece was so important in the picture. And Mm -hmm. I'm happy that, I'm happy that you see that too. Yeah, I love it. Well, I think these are all really nitty gritty details. And so there are the things that, you know, we, I think maybe take for granted when we look at other websites or when we look at other businesses. And so I think it's really helpful just to have a glimpse into how you're making these decisions and how many little decisions there are in making 
your brand and developing a business. Yeah, I agree. I think when you look at it, like you said, a website or a business, it's easy to look at it and think like, oh, that must have been easy or they make it look so simple. So you think it's easy, right? Which, I mean, I'm sure you can think of 10 examples in your own life of something like that. There's just so many times when that happens. And um, typically it's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What other things about starting a business um, do you think would be important for someone to hear? Let's say they are kind of still in that ideation phase and they really want to start a business, but the unknown is too big for them to take that first step right now. You know, what other things would you maybe challenge them to think about or just even, yeah, I'm just asking 10 questions at once so you can choose which one you want to answer. So, <laughs> so you know, like what would you recommend that they think about or um, what other, you know, considerations did you maybe not have at the forefront of your mind, but through this process have kind of realized they're, they're also important. Yeah. Run with that. See where you go. Yeah, I will. We'll see. Um, I'm, I'm going to start kind of big picture. I think what my mind first goes to Wait. when you ask that question. Um, so at the start of my OTD program, taking you guys back a little bit to answer this question, but Love it. Love the it. start of my program, we had this book called the mentee's guide, making mm -hmm. mentoring work for you. And one of the activities in this book that I did probably my second or third week of my OTD is you go, you really sit down and think about your personal vision and seeing yourself in the future. So really just sitting down, relaxed environment, and it asks kind of a series of questions. When you think about yourself in five years, what job are you doing? How are you contributing to the success of your workplace? What impact are you having on the people around you? All of these kind mm -hmm. of questions. So I sat down and I typed out this page of this vision. Oddly enough, Weirdly enough, turns out that this is kind of the direction I'm going in. Wow, look at that, right? <laughs> um, but I think that if, when you sit down and do that, it's helpful in the moment for figuring out what you foresee for yourself, right? Because that helps guide your decisions from that point, right? So if you know mm -hmm. in the future this is what you want, well, you can think about the small steps to how to get there, right? If you don't want a business, that's okay, obviously, um, but, but whatever it is, right? If it's you want to be a specialist in traumatic brain injury and you want to get certified, if there is a certification for that, I don't know. I'm not a traumatic there brain is. injury therapist. There is, yeah. But it, it kind of helps you sit down and reflect on your journey and where you want to be mm -hmm. and how to make those decisions. So it's funny. And besides doing it in the moment, looking back on it is just incredible to, to look back on and to reflect on. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is also from my OTD in a presentation I did about my evolving future. It sounds a little silly, but that's what it was called. Um, I, you know, I reflected back on how I made my decisions of getting to OT school, of going into pediatric practice, and of choosing to go to USC for my OTD. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is in all of those decisions, I never was fully confident and I always had questions and I always had maybe like, oh, should I do this? Should I not do this? All of that, right? And so then you're like, well, how did you make the decision then if you weren't confident or if you had all these questions? And it comes down to me, I think, to thinking about what you do know, right? So I knew that I wanted to maybe be able to teach at a college and to have a business that could help support students and to work with pediatrics, right? So these are my goals and how I get there might vary, but mm -hmm. my decisions of how I get there, right, are based on those things that I know about what I want. Um, and so that's, 
I think a way to think through, you know, your next steps if you want to go into business or not, right? Um, but to be really intentional about thinking about, you know, what you want to do and how you want to grow as an occupational therapist. Yeah. So even if all the the steps that are going to get you there aren't clear yet, having that vision of just in the distance, I feel like it's a little bit more approachable when it's like in the future or like, I love the phrase like when I grow up, because I think I use that now more than when I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Um, I have ideas, but it's, it's, it's nice to have some end goal in mind. And I think it's cool to allow that to shift as well mm-hmm. and be okay with the fact that you're the goal you're working towards might not be your end result, but working towards something does give some guidance and some intentionality to our actions, which is, is pretty apparent with your story too. Yeah. And you mentioned another good point, right? It's okay if it changes, right? It's, it's probably mm-hmm. not going to, this is not going to be what my day looks like in five years, probably what I wrote down, but um, it's helpful as a guide. And, um, you know, another thing that stuck out to me from my OTD that it's just, I think the OTD, I keep mentioning it, but I think it's because they make you do so much active reflection that Mm -hmm. I didn't incorporate as much before my OTD. Um, But one of the things that you mentioned is that it's not this straight path always, right? I I have this graphic that I used a couple times. It's, there's a straight line, there's a line with like a few curves and squigglies, right? And then there's this line that starts and is just a jumbled curvy mess. And at the (laughs) end, there's still the arrow, right? So it's not going to be a straight path. I mean, if it is, then you're probably the minority or you don't exist because it seems impossible, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, definitely. You have mentioned your OTD experience quite a bit. And I am eventually going to be doing an episode about sort of, is the OTD the right, you know, path? So of course, I'm going to have you on that one too, because you're just a great guest. But I'm hoping to get a few other perspectives as well. So it seems like a lot of the activities and sort of tasks and assignments in the OTD were very reflexive and, you know, kind of helped you think through this. But the OTD is not, you know, OT business school, right? It's, it's, that's not the point of it. So not everybody's establishing a business. So what would you say overall about the OTD that influenced your process? I know you've given some examples, but like, do you have like sort of like a big picture view of how the OTD has influenced your, your career? so far? Yeah. So I would say, you know, obviously it's going to be different for every person. Um, and every program is very different. So I think it, it would depend right on which program you're in. So one thing I don't think I mentioned is that my program was residency based. So I only took like a course or two a semester and the rest was really immersing myself in a residency experience, which is where I really learned a lot of these takeaways are are from there. And the courses were great too, but, um, those two big things I would say that I learned from the OTD that influenced me now are probably like that reflectiveness that you mentioned, but also just the critical thinking and a different way of thinking. I think after my OTD, it just shifted. I just shifted my thinking. It feels weird to say that, but just like reading a research article or thinking about a program to develop or a business to develop, anything like that, right? My first thoughts are that of like so many questions and like critically thinking through the results or the effectiveness of this program or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, you know, just that thinking differently, which also I Mm -hmm. think highly relates to leadership. So Mm. I'm going to retract instead of two things, I have three. (laughs) Reflective (laughs) thinking. Thank you. Thank you. 
reflective thinking, the critical thinking, and then also that leadership. And I think those first mm-hmm. two tie into leadership. And that was a big sure. emphasis of my OTD program was that leadership. Um, really seeing yourself as a leader and seeing yourself as a change agent in the field. And while I wouldn't say I am fully confident all the time, of course, after that program, <laughs> it did really help with just my ability to see myself in that role. I think that's really good feedback because I think that unless you are actively looking at an OTD program, well, I can only speak from my own experience. That isn't the route, obviously, that I have taken so far, but I think there's a lot of sort of also mystery around what is an OTD and what is the purpose of it because there's entry-level OTDs and then post-professional OTDs, and you did a post-professional program, so you weren't gaining the active therapy skills. You were gaining a lot of these other skills that you've talked about. And I think it's important to see those differences and that it's not just a degree where everybody's going to have a pretty similar experience. I think it depends on when in your career you do it. Do you see value in in the placement of when you did your OTD? So you did it after practicing for a bit. Mm-hmm. You- yes, I did. So I worked for a little over a year before I left to go get my OTD. Um, for me personally, I think it was the best thing I could have done. Um Everything I learned as a therapist actually working in the field informed so much of my OTD. I had this concept of what I wanted the focus of my OTD program, residency, project, all of that to be. Um, Because we talked about this earlier, I knew what those kind of ideal clients were or what in OT really like I had passion for. Um, Mm -hmm. So that that experience before going to the OTD, I, I found it invaluable. But Mm -hmm. most of the people I was in the program with went right from their master's into the OTD program. So, you know, everybody, everybody does it a little bit differently. But for me, it was just, it was great. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's been really helpful to hear about your OTD and how that really influenced your, your kind of your process of, of starting a business and also just your professional journey. And it's been great to hear some of the also like nitty gritty details and nuances of what it looks like to actually take that reflective thought and critical thinking and put it into action and actually start a business. And I think you've mentioned a lot of sort of challenges along the way, also resources that have been really helpful to get you where you are now. What have been some of maybe the unexpected challenges that you faced? One, I know we talked about you, you were in California starting this business in Delaware pretty much about as far as you can get from one another. And then you're also doing this amid COVID. But what like what else has been really challenging that might be helpful for us to hear about? Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned like I was out of state and the state we were moving to, I didn't I don't have an active license yet, right? That's in process. Um, but I do have an active license in a neighboring state, which is Maryland. And so the timing of getting my Delaware OT license and getting these business licenses and all of this was just very different than what I expected or what was advertised mm. on these websites for what it would be. Sure. Um, so that's been really challenging. And, you know, there's been several times, I don't want to make this sound like, you know, business is the best and so easy, right, to get started. I mean, it is, I recommend it. But also there's been so many times where I like, panic text Miranda, for example, or, um, you know, I'm just, I get news about the fact that this license is going to be reviewed two or three weeks or whenever it gets reviewed later than I thought. 
Yeah. So there's been several of like moments of like tears and panic, right? Oh, of yeah. like just being upset, right? And I will say while those have been some of the biggest challenges, it also really I see kind of that OTD leadership thought process at work because I can picture it, right? Me getting the news about this license at my desk, crying for like 10 minutes and then realizing, okay, this is what we have to deal with. How are we going to pivot and be flexible and Mm -hmm. deal with this challenge? So that really is a challenge, but also just an opportunity to, you know, see your flexibility and see your your business savvy at work, I guess. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, bound to happen. Those things are bound to happen. Yeah, that brings up a really good point of just being able to be flexible and pivot and know that, you know, if things are going to come at us and if you still want, you know, your business to be successful, you have to sort of just roll with the punches and kind of figure things out step by step. I am curious though, when you first in your, in in OT school, when you first started thinking about your own business, do you feel like that concept and what you visualized is different now? Or have you felt like your ideas were pretty consistent because I know you've had to make pivots, but I don't know how much that really deviated from your initial vision. So Yeah. Do you mean when I was like in like bachelor master's first OT school program? Yeah. Did you do your business plan project about a pediatric practice? No, we were in a group. So we did like a some type of mental. Were we in the mental... same group? I think so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Never mind. Then we did not. <laughs> it feels so long ago. Yeah, it does. Um but you were thinking along those lines anyway of having a pediatric practice, even if our group business plan wasn't. wasn't right. Like yes. So you're right. That's something I had thought about. And I will say, though, you know, at that point in time, I wasn't even an occupational therapist yet. Right. So I had this general sense that maybe I wanted to work with kids, maybe some t- type of interest in supporting the foster care system or mm-hmm. something of that nature. Right. But I had no concept of like what values my business should have or what type of treatment method I find, you know, important for a business. So all of that is what kind of developed over time. And I think only your experiences as an OT can really help you define what that's going to be for your business. Mm -hmm. Something you mentioned um, too with sort of the values and the approaches and some of that important foundation of your business how do you feel like OT theory and philosophy kind of fits into what you're doing and how have you kept that in mind as you've gone forward? Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about all of this reflection that I've been Mm -hmm. doing, right? And I will say I reflect a little bit on some theory, but probably not as much as I should. One theory that I, gosh, I cite all the time and I mentioned I'm an adjunct professor and Every chance I get, I think I use Moho as an example sure. um, <laughs> and Volition because I think yeah. Volition is so important, which is why that first um, value is guided by child interests. So, and that concept is embedded in SI and it's also embedded in floor time. So just this whole motivation, internal drive concept that drives business for sure. But I think in a more kind of general sense, like just this holistic view and approach, right? So by that, I I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, definitions of that. But Mm -hmm. by that, I mean, you know, I'm I'm trying to take into account the family's context, the family's environment, the family's just unit that's already established before I step into their lives. 
So I think only kind of that foundation of OT context could really mm-hmm. inform the importance that I, I see in that. That's great. I. Yeah. It's funny you said, you know, I'm not thinking as much as I should. Then you just quickly rattled off like four different theories and frameworks that are guiding your practice. So I think it's also one of those things where when you're in OT school and maybe we take for granted the theories because it doesn't feel applicable. But I think that something that I've really learned is that we develop a way of thinking and that way of thinking is structured around theoretical frameworks. It, it has to be. Otherwise, what we're doing looks random and it doesn't make sense. Those theories kind of become embedded into our thinking. And so even if we're not approaching a session saying, I'm going to use this theory, I mean, it's just it, it influences everything we do. And so I can see completely how that theory is has influenced your foundation of your business and what you value and how you're going to approach therapy. Mm-hmm. A little aside, but off yeah. of that, you're so right. And I honestly forget that sometimes. <laughs> I just watched a webinar where the person talked about how, you know, OTs just think differently. And I think that you're right, right? What what makes us say that? It's that theory and it's that background that we have. So as far as this approach to your business, we've talked about the theory, we've talked about a lot of the practical steps, we've talked about your OTD and how it's influenced. I feel like we've covered so much. What do you see as the future of your business? You developed that vision and can we get a little bit of a window into what that's going to be? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, there's this this overarching business, right? So obviously I want to be in business. Um, <laughs> but a couple of things that are kind of funny for me to read back are just the concept that I want mentorship and kind of helping support OT students to be a big component of the business. Part of that really is because as an OT student myself, pediatric opportunities were really challenging to find, at least where we were. Um, You know, and I got really just lucky. It was random that I happened to have a pediatric experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I really value that and think that's quite important in a practice to support, you know, pre-OT students, fieldwork students, all of that. Um, And then the other thing is Research. So I completed my OTD in a research track. So I, I was embedded in a research lab throughout my my program. Um, not, you know, a PhD researcher by any means, but part of kind of those fieldwork student relationships and me being an adjunct professor and all of that, right? I really want that all to interconnect. So I want that all to, you know, relate together. And one of the other things is contributing to research projects, whether I'm an investigator or my business is just supporting that research. Um, I think that that's just a really important thing. So, you know, supporting future, the future of OT, right, in students and in research, both of those are important to the future of our profession. That's huge. You're you're so right too that pediatrics is such an exciting area of OT and I think a lot of people become OTs because they're interested in peds. That's what attracted me as well even though I now work with adults. And to have those opportunities up front, we know firsthand the value of it. And I love that even though you're not a student anymore, well, you were not a student and then you were a student again and now you're not a student again. But even though you're a little bit far away now from when you were a fieldwork student, quite a few years now, you still remember the value of that mentorship that you got in that unique fieldwork experience that you had. And the fact that you just really see students as such a vital part of our profession is such an important framework that I think we all need to just keep reminding ourselves of. 
I see a lot of what the OT students are doing at their capstone projects and in their field works. And I know you had an opportunity to mentor field work students this past year as well. So I'd be interested to hear you know, more about that and the experience of hearing their ideas. Because I hear a lot of fresh ideas that sometimes they're a little bit idealistic. And I think we need that. <laughs> because I think if you really believe it can happen and you start with sort of seeing all the possibility, I think that's such an important perspective in our profession. And so I love hearing it. But what was your experience, you know, mentoring fieldwork students this year through telehealth because of COVID? Yeah, it was, you know, it was a really interesting experience. So for a little bit of context, USC um, had a lot of level two fieldwork students that were supposed to have fieldwork this summer. And, you know, because of COVID, a lot of those sites couldn't take that volume of students or any. And so, you know, USC is, is tends to be innovative and at the top of a lot of things. And so they developed this concept of this program where students did their fieldwork halftime in telehealth in a clinic, right? So virtually, but, you know, direct patient care. But then the other half of the time, they were with myself and a, a professor at the college. And we worked with them, helped provide them like educational in-services and also worked with them to develop some sort of innovative project, some kind of clinically relevant, helpful project. And you're so right in that, you know, the innovative ideas that can come from that are just awesome. It's great to watch kind of the light bulbs click, right, when a student is experiencing direct patient care, and then they're also translating what they're experiencing there to develop something helpful for the therapist mm -hmm. or the families that they could use. Um, and so it was really interesting in this program specifically, the students really conceptualized the entire idea. So they didn't even come in with a concept of what they should do, really. They just, mm -hmm. you know, did it. Um, so it was, it was really great to see just those creative ideas. And honestly, for a business owner, right, it's helpful to have students to help your business with innovative ideas and to provide help in developing new projects or programs or things like that. So I think that, you know, more and more businesses, I think are really doing that. I think a lot of OTs naturally want to do that, but um, I just hope that more and more people do. I think that's a great charge for business owners and other therapists alike to really value student input um, and, and take on fieldwork students. We've all benefited from the people before us that were willing to take that sacrifice of maybe staying a little bit late at work to review documentation with us or to provide that extra mentorship. So I think it's good to pass that forward. Yes, yeah. definitely. Going on that train of sort of investing in our profession, I think that's something that you have demonstrated so far in your um, just attention to students and to research and just seeing that there's this bigger picture even beyond day-to-day -day treatment. You're also serving in a role in AOTA, and I just wanted to know if you could just briefly tell us about that position. Yeah, so I'm the Professional Development Coordinator for the Sensory Integration and Processing Special Interest Section of AOTA. So it's a little bit of a mouthful, so I'll explain. <laughs> um, so AOTA has special interest section groups. Um, there's They have them for lots of different kind of aspects of the field of OT. So there's one for children and youth specifically. There's one for. I mean, I'll link to it too, because there's so many, right? Right. I just, I was trying to think of an adult example, but I really don't have one. It's okay. You're Without misquoting. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So these special intersections have a lot of different topics and um, 
what they do is they try to really generate and develop resources for OT practitioners in that specific field or area of practice. Mm -hmm. Um, So within the sensory integration and processing, we, you know, develop resources for that specific area. Um, And one of the things that all of the SISs have is a commune OT discussion forum. I'm not sure if people are familiar, but I use it a lot as a new practitioner. Um, But it's basically a discussion board for your area of practice. You can go on and ask questions, and other OTs will respond to those questions, usually also members of that special interest section who have expertise in that area. And it can really help with generating ideas for what to do with a certain client that might be hard to... um, to figure out what to do with that's evidence-based. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one resource that those, those um, SISs provide. And my role specifically is looking at the professional development trends within sensory integration and processing and trying to um, support OTs with those resources and just point them in the direction of some continuing education that they could do. Um, in addition to trying to find authors and things like that for continuing education materials. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good reminder of the role of a professional organization and how many opportunities there are out there for us. And even if people aren't aware of special interest sections, I'm sure some of the work that has come out of those has benefited our, you know, the other members of AOTA. And so I think it's good to be aware of how many people are working behind the scenes to keep our profession moving in the right direction. Yeah, it's really great. You know, prior to this, I didn't have too much involvement with AOTA besides, you know, being a member and using their website a little bit. But I've realized more and more how many resources they truly have for us that sometimes are just a little hard to find because they have so much, right, Right. going on um, on their website and just so many things that they're doing. But, you know, a silly thing, but I will mention it, is whenever you sign up for AOTA, you likely have two to three special interest sections that are designated as the ones you signed up for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what we're talking about. It's just those that you, you already have, you know, listed that you're interested mm-hmm. in. I think it's good to know, though, because the you do select your interest areas, but it's not abundantly clear that behind the scenes those actually mean something and it's not just a tag that's expressing your interest. I mean, there's actually people behind those special interest sections working to contribute to that area of practice. So I think it is, you know, we know we check those boxes, but I think it's good to hear a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes for those as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's a lot more happening behind the scenes than I realized. So, yeah. Yeah, it's good to know. I think it is a good challenge to also be involved in state and national organizations, even though sometimes it can feel like one more thing. Everyone I talk to who's a volunteer with AOTA um, finds it to be a very valuable experience, not only for them, professionally also for our profession as a whole Mm -hmm. and so I think it's good to be hearing about the different ways people can serve and use their skills yeah so throughout this episode you have mentioned so many different um, resources and just tips and tricks I love how tangible so many of these are that people taking those next steps can really just grasp and move forward with and also some of the bigger picture vision development ideas that are just as important maybe even probably more important than a lot of those individual steps. So I feel like I've gotten a great education in the last, you know, hour and a half, however long we've been talking. Um, And I know that these are going to be really helpful for other folks. I typically ask for book recommendations. And I think you already mentioned two in our talk. One of them, if I can read my handwriting, Ready, Set, what was it? Treat? Ready, Set, Treat, yeah. Ready, Set, Treat, okay. And Mentee 
is the only word of the other one I can read. So do you mind just refreshing us on what those books were? And then I will, of course, link them in the show notes that people can find them. Yeah. So the first one is Ready, Set, Treat. And it's the official pocket guide to starting your solo private practice. And you can um, just buy that right on Amazon. Um, The other one I mentioned was the Mentee's Guide. And that's the one where I went through some of those exercises for thinking about my vision, um, thinking about how to navigate a mentor-mentee relationship, um, and thinking about kind of some goals and areas for growth um, in myself. So that was, it was helpful for that. I think it's not too expensive. Um, and they, uh, okay, I have two more. Two Ooh, more. Okay, I got great. out just for this. Oh, perfect. Okay, tell us about them. Okay. So the first one, I'll stick with the general books. The first one is called Crucial Conversations, mm-hmm. Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. Ooh. It's a basically a communication book that helps you try to navigate through conversations that tend to be kind of emotionally charged and when to kind of identify that the conversation is getting to that point and how to bring the conversation back to the true goal of what you're trying to communicate. Um, Ooh, so that it's like gold. It is gold. Highly recommended. <laughs> I think I refer yeah. to it too much that Travis like rolls his eyes that I'm talking about this book again. Um, so the good. last one is specific to pediatrics. Um, if anybody's interested in learning more about kind of that relationship-based floor time model that I talked about, I learned the preliminary information about that from The Child with Special Needs, written by Greenspan and Weider. Um, but he, they're basically the ones that started the DIR floor time model. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a pretty lengthy book, but they go through just a lot of the theoretical foundations for their approach. Very good. We got bonus book recommendations. I love it. We will definitely link to those as well so that people can access those if this is an area of interest for them. One other thing I'm just going to throw out there is just a, a resource. It was another podcast I just listened to a couple weeks ago. At the beginning, you talked about this idea of having a non-compete um, and how it was really advantageous that you came into a new market without having a non-compete in that area. I personally am not super familiar with how those work. And so I listened to an episode of um, 40 Years in Counting, Building Business Success and Therapy Practices, What Matters Most by Iris Kimberg, who's an, I believe she's an OT and a PT back when that was a thing. And she did an episode um, with Tamika Faison about the three most misunderstood clauses in therapy contracts. And so I'm going to link to that as well, because if if someone listening is in that position where they're currently working and they want to start their own business and they're like, oh, no, what's the legal implications of me breaking off and doing my own thing? That episode was super helpful in kind of breaking down those different clauses and how they might be, you know, helpful or make it more challenging to open up a business. So I want to throw that out there before I forget. That's great. I'll have to listen to that, too. That sounds yeah. really helpful. <laughs> yeah, and it's good. They talk about it from the perspective of the business owner and the therapist. So yes. it's really good. All right. So as we wrap up here, we've got your book recommendation. Let's talk about what we were drinking today. All right. So for a cheap bottle of wine, I will say not as bad as you might imagine. Um, I tend to prefer reds, and this is a Pinot Grigio, so it's a white. Um, mm-hmm. But it is good. It's not too sweet. Um, and it's just a nice nice glass of wine that would probably go well with, with dinner later. Nice. Enjoy. Yeah, um, I am drinking a wine. Like I said, it's called Dime, and it was made in Santa Barbara. And we were drinking the 2016 
one, although I just got another one in the mail that I think was 2017. So I'm excited to see if there were differences. And this is a blend. So it's 70% Cab Sauv and 30% Merlot. So I've been really interested in some of these blends lately because I also prefer reds and I feel like every episode I drink a Cab Sauv or a red blend. So it's pretty predictable what I'm going to be drinking. But I do like kind of testing out these different blends and kind of seeing what their um, differences are. We love this one. Okay. Um, We had some before and we really enjoy because it is sort of that dark red rich flavor um, and it they do a really good job of balancing the fruity flavor with some of those like spice flavors and I think a lot of wines are have, a, have maybe a little bit of trouble striking that balance between the two and I thought this one was very well balanced easy to drink um, and really good for a nice meal and it wasn't expensive so it's like the best of all worlds with that so I would recommend and I will link to it I think that they are out of the 2016 I think now you'd have to get the 2017 we got this one a bit ago so definitely recommend them. So I love your reviews of, sorry, I love your reviews of wine, Miranda. Thank you. They're so detailed. I can tell why you're the OT on Cork podcaster. <laughs> I, my review was it tastes pretty good. It would go good with dinner. And you've got all this like this fancy, these fancy terms in your review. I love it. Well, I, I have need to this, learn more. this fun wine wheel that I don't have in front of me at the moment, but whenever I can't quite describe a wine, I, um, I have to post it if I can find a digital version, but I got it at a wine tasting I went to on a cruise actually. And it goes through all the different flavor profiles. So if you, it kind of like gets from vague down to specific in the middle of the circle. And so it can help you kind of describe it. So if you're drinking, you're like, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. You can kind of start at the outside and work your way in until you settle on a, a flavor. But the best part is about rating wine is that no one can tell you you're wrong because you have different taste buds. So it's a fabulous way to just feel confident without really being sure <laughs> that's what you're tasting. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for being on this episode of OT Uncorked. It's been exciting to hear the updates from when we had our interview a little over a year ago to now and just see all the progress you are making towards your vision and just really appreciate you sharing all of that insight with us today. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you for having me and for for hosting this podcast. I know it's helpful for so many um, OTs out there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of OT Uncorked. Amanda is full of practical recommendations and inspiration for OTs thinking about starting their own private practice. I have a few major takeaways from this episode. One, the idea that iteratively reflecting on your journey and goals and vision is a huge and important step in creating a business. It can be easy to be distracted by all the small decisions and steps, but returning to your values and vision often will help you keep the course. My second major takeaway was something that surprised me. Amanda talked a lot about how the post-professional OTD had a major influence on her taking the next steps towards starting her business, and that it really set her up with the critical thinking, reflection, and leadership skills that she needed for this new phase of her career. Having not done an OTD, it was really helpful for me to hear about some of the major benefits of how she started applying what she learned well before she graduated. Since we recorded the episode, Amanda has started seeing clients in both Delaware and Maryland, and I'm excited to see how her business grows and the positive impact she has on her new community. We might just need to do a follow-up episode next year to talk about lessons learned during the first year. Thank you so much for listening to OT Uncorked. It is always fun to sit down with you and uncork OT with a glass of wine. Cheers! Cheers!